DMs, have you ever felt like banishing a player to the Astral Sea for insisting your rule interpretation was bogus? Players, have you ever felt frustrated that a 19 on a perception check only tells you that there may or may not be something there? Celestial Warlocks. Yo, why aren't you guys just clerics? Then this is the podcast for you. Where we take a hard look at the rules of the game, the reality of the table, and the role of the dice to solve D&D's most heated arguments. This is Raw and Order. Dum dum. Springtime for us, not Hitler. And Iowa, guys, it's spring. If you didn't know what that was, that was the song called Springtime for Hitler that I parodied. Did you, wait, is that a, is that a thing? Is that a song? Yeah, that's a song. From, from, from uh, the producers. Oh, I've never Winter watched that. But. For, oh, okay. Well, it's, it's. I'll uh, believe they make, you that it's They good. make, the premise is that they purposefully make a musical that is terrible which is why there's a song called Springtime for Hitler, where there are dancing, <laughs> giant dancing like pretzels and people doing like the Heil Hitler. Oh, God. In order to like, they like overinvested in it to like m- make it flop so they could reap all them. I don't know. So they're just, shorting their own production. Yes, 100%. Okay. And, and then it doesn't work. I don't know. Whatever. And they didn't have Redditors that decided to make it a huge success so that they couldn't <laughs> short their own production. All right. Throwback. Throwback. <laughs> So welcome back, everyone. We are here. Anna, it is so beautiful outside. Oh I, I know that it's beautiful outside because I always can tell when it's a really nice day, not just because I'm outside and can feel it, but if Stella sits down in the grass mm-hmm. mid-walk, I'm like, oh, it's a good day today. Yeah, Clyde <laughs> does that too. Oh my God. Also, okay, so I had a delivery to my Ooh, home. well. Tell me more, because so far this story is boring. (laughs) (laughs) Things. Um, You are looking at the proud owner of an elliptical. Oh, my God. She's fancy. I spent all afternoon yesterday putting it together. I got a little annoyed because some you have to like grease up these axles like with uh, they, they give you packets of grease and it's called generic white grease. And I'm like. Generic white grease for a generic white man, honey. And I cut that I shit open. I a really dirty joke. I won't say it. Okay. Let's. Your mother listens to this, Anna. Let's not. Let's spare her. Um, so I. Oh, okay. I jizzed all over the axle and I greased it. It did kind of look funky. But hey, I put that shit together myself. So proud of you. I'm an independent woman. I love that okay. you bought an indoor exercise machine just as the weather turns beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I thought about buying it a long time ago. Ah. Joe, so. Joe, I have a question for you. Yes. I want you to tell us the story of your Gydra One campaign because I talked to our friend Steve yesterday <gasps> who told me that one of your characters died and Aww. had to be brought back to life. Tell us how it happened. Okay. Well, I, this is, I mean, it, it was a narrative reason for it, um, but uh, they were fighting. Well, I, I don't want to reveal too much, 
I have to be careful because things, you know, you're both in the same world. Oh. Um, but they were, they went into this enormous, um, th- this temple that sat underneath this like enormous tree. Think like Yggdrasil, tree of life, enormous tree, hundreds of feet tall. Um, and so they went into this temple and um, one of the characters who had previously been cursed by a sword that he found. Um, yes. And then in his dream went to some strange world where some figure was trying to convince him to give in and submit to the ultimate power. Um, uh, he felt drawn to this area and there was a, there was a blight that was um, uh, destroying the forest that they were in and slowly spreading out across the whole continent. And it seemed to be that the center of this was in this tree. Um, and so they got down to the last boss fight Um his so we're talking about Lenny. He's a halfling monk, um, played by the great Cliff, who one day will be a guest on the yes, show. Yes, one day. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he so the ability it was this like wraith, um, this like dire wraith that I had created, which I won't tell you too much about because I'll probably use it in your <laughs> campaign at some point. Um, but but it, it reduced like everyone's maximum hit points by a lot. Torax went down, that's Steve's character. And then um, at the very end of the battle, right as this creature had been killed, I had planned that the big bad who was, you know, for this for this arc, who um was speaking to Lenny and who had cursed the sword appeared through like a portal and cast the seventh level spell or sixth level spell finger of death at him. Oh boy. Um, uh, which basically There's no coming back from finger of death. Oh honey. Oh honey. <laughs> they managed it. Oh honey. Um, so he casts it now finger of death does 30 damage plus, I think it's like, 7d10 or i don't know i'm not looking at this oh spell. my god <laughs> but it does a fuckload of damage and you have to make a con save or, or take half well he, lenny actually made the save but had i not my plan was to kill him because i wanted him to experience this this because basically this guy like grabbed his soul and uh was uh brought him to like his dimension wherever it is and is trying to convince him to like join him in whatever it is he's doing and um so he ha- but he had to kill him in order to do that had i not previously reduced his hit points he actually would have just been downed and not flat out dead oh my gosh but because i, I reduced his hit points he took like 50 something damage and only had like 13 hit points left so it, it reduced him to zero and went beyond his hit point maximum, uh, which was 23 to 27. So I was only four points away from, oh. not, from not killing him. Uh, so it worked out in my favor. But uh, they were able to revivify him and get him back. But it was a really uh, – we got to use for the first time uh, – it was the first time I ever killed a character. And um, it, it wasn't as serious because I knew in the back of my head that, like, it would be fine. <laughs> the players didn't. But they didn't know. <laughs> right. So uh, – Wow. An actual revivify. Yeah, I I'm, know. I'm excited for one of us to die and be brought back. That's going to be exciting. All right. Well, next session. No, 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 no. You asked for it. You heard it here, folks. Those goddamn owlbears. Anna said she wants Yurikin, our fighter, to die and and for Draxel never. to bring him back. I, I just, I don't know if bringing back that old man 
is going to be worth the diamond. So kill somebody younger. <laughs> Imagine just kidding, Yurikin. Just Yurikin, kidding, Mike. Yurikin just dies of old age midway through the campaign. That's what I assume will happen one we'll of have these to have, days. We're going to have to have Mike back in order to uh, defend his honor. Yes. So, Michael, or in order for us, us to make fun of his elderly character that he's decided to play he does so much fucking damage and he's like such a badass character and then you remember that he's 612 years old and just wait like i gave him access i'm not going to spoil it because i want him to show you guys throughout what he can do it is i if you Mm -hmm. can't see me Mm -hmm. i'm patting myself on my back right now because I gave him such cool abilities. So just you You wait. gave us all pretty cool abilities. Oh I my can't god. Wait. I can't oh, wait. It's gonna be amazing. Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway. So you guys who do we have? Who do we have? Well, I was gonna say that I'm really excited. We're recording this on Thursday, but this weekend I'm gonna go see <gasps> our star pupil. Oh, you guys should take a picture, post it on Twitter. Oh, I will. Oh, that's why. I was like, why did somebody tell me to take a picture with Sandy? It was you, so that we could post it on Twitter. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so it was her it was her birthday in April. Mm. and um, happy birthday sandra yes happy birthday sandra and even she though won't... it was my birthday in march and she didn't say happy birthday to me so <laughs> that <fine>. bitch <gasps> anyway um she won't listen to this episode until after i have already visited her and given her her birthday present so i will tell you here <laughs> that i got her just like a bunch of D stuff <laughs> oh what did you get her i got her so like five sets of plastic dice two sets of metal dice so she could make up her own mind what kind she oh. wants um, um, I think I got her a dice tray. Um, I I'm like looking that you don't into, know. yeah, I, it was just like so much stuff. And like, I got her a mini. I got her a little Dragonborn <gasps> mini, and she's like a little badass lady Dragonborn. Um, and she kind of looks like the one that Sandy put together. Um, and then Sandy also has an Instagram where she takes pictures of the delicious food that she makes, and she's like <gasps> trying to get it like going. So I also bought her um, this cool like. It's like one of those like screens that professional photographers use <gasps> to like Ooh. cut the shade and glare and stuff like that. So it's going to be amazing. I'm super excited. I feel like I'm going to just take pictures of her opening these presents and then I'll post those on Twitter instead because That is that's <laughs> a, you're a good friend. Like that's an amazing gift to, Yum. to and it also serves you because you're like, okay, now we know she'll exactly. have her fucking equipment to play D&D. <laughs> she already bought the player's handbook. That was going to be part of the present too, but then <laughs> the second we were like, every new player should buy the player's handbook. She's like, she I already it. ordered it on Amazon. <laughs> UK, you could still get her Xanathar's Guide to Everything. That's true. Send it to her house so that it arrives while you get there. Ooh. I'm just trying to get you to spend more money on Sandy. <laughs> I'm looking after you, Sandy. Fair enough. <laughs> She's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy birthday, Sandra. We'll have you back soon. Yes, we um, will. Um, yeah. But for now, let's get for to now. our episode of Raw and Order. Guess who we oh. have coming back? Who do we have? We have Clint. <gasps> Clint. Yay. Yay. I can apologize in person for all the shit that I gave him when it comes to rules <laughs> corrections. Yay. Did he listen to our last episode? He, Does he, he know? <laughs> yeah. And he still agreed to come back. So his so, fault. Yeah. <laughs> so deal with it. All right. Let's get to it.
Oye, oye, oye. The Honorable Chief Justices Joe and Anna and Associate Justice Clint of the Supreme Court of DND. All persons having business before this court are admonished to draw near, give their attention, and stay tuned for whatever kind of wacky shit they find in Giuliani's office, for the court is now sitting. Welcome back, Clint! Yay! Yay! Hey guys, how you doing? Lovely, doing how great. are you? I am all right. Um, so my wife is away this week on business, um, which is you can tell because all of my books are actually out instead of in hiding. <laughs> Got this nice. I was set. wondering why you had time to be on this show. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, between between that and litigation, it's normally a tight spot. But you know, like, mm. yeah. Uh, the the one good thing though is that, and like my wife doesn't listen to this, so it's not a big deal. But the house is cleaner. Um, <laughs> never wow never say that i'm i'm clipping this and sending it to sarah yeah you just, do that you do so that you know. okay. <laughs> and all my characters die um uh well we don't have to do our whole intro y'all because you know, y'all Clint. know he's, Clint. he's mm-hmm. been on here before yeah so yeah. shall we get right to our cases let's do it let's do it let's yeah. go the court's gonna hear two cases today and the first one is Players versus familiars. Uh, do you have to be within range in order to magic your familiar in or out of existence? Mm. And this and question. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, it was your character that had this pop up. So why don't you tell us? Oh, no, I was going to say this question was submitted by Ant. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. It, was, it came up in game. It came up in game. The That's other right. question was submitted by Andrew. I'm, listen, it's been a day. It literally came up in game for you. So. <laughs> Um, all right, so we were playing Icewind Dale. Mm-hmm. Inky has a familiar named Mr. Bojangles. He is a the sort of like undead fox type creature. And what? Anna's creepy giving me a look. As fuck. oh yeah, he's a little creepy, but I do. Inky I, loves him. I do like the budding dynamic between him and the like rimbling white dragon that we have running around <laughs> with the party. <laughs> There's some uh, there's some hijinks. There's gonna be like a a a miniature episode with just them two on an adventure. One hundred percent. Yeah. I I mean that would be hilarious. Um, I'm curious what Mr. Bojangle sounds like. He can communicate with me telepathically. So anytime you want to give him a voice, I think you should. Um, oh, you you but, want me to have uh, control over that? I well, think I, that absolutely okay. because then you'll have to have a conversation between Harry the Dragon and <laughs> Mr. Bojangles, and then you'll be the only one talking, and I want to watch that happen. You know, so. it, no, Mr. Bojangles <laughs> can't talk to him; he can only yeah. talk to me. Mm-hmm. So we'll yeah, figure it sorry. out. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I'll, because I'll, I'll, I'll translate. Because you know, since we do most of our gaming online, it sure looks fucking crazy as hell just watching me do it. From like the hallway, so yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we were in this cave. We just defeated this like evil witch person, hag, and, a hag, whatever. And I sent my familiar to go to the front of the cave, which was like well over two hundred feet away, to talk to uh, or to keep an eye on our sled dogs to make sure they did not get eaten um, or die some other horrible death. (laughs) And the question came up, could I just bamf him out of existence into his pocket dimension from where I was super far away and then bamf him back within 30 feet? Um, So what did we end up doing? Did we end up bringing bringing him back in game? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, he's he's allowed to do that, yeah. Yeah, so, and that's how I've always sort of understood the spell, but we wanted to kind of just dig deeper into it a little bit. So why don't we read um, from the spell Find Familiar, um, just the portion that's relevant. Um, As an action, you can temporarily dismiss your familiar. It disappears into a pocket dimension where it awaits your summons. Alternatively, you can dismiss it forever. As an action, while it is temporarily dismissed, you can cause it to reappear in any unoccupied space within 30 feet of you. So that's sort of the relevant portion. Um, So the question is, I mean, I, I can only make it appear within 30 feet of me as an action, but does it need to be close to me in order to benefit out of existence? So Clint? Well, yeah, Clint, what's, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so and I think if you take a look at the uh, the spell in its entirety, um, there are several indicators that seem to argue in the direction of being able to unsummon or bamf your familiar regardless of distance. And I think part of that is that in every other portion of the spell where they call out an action by the player, it specifies the distance and range. The only place where it doesn't do that is dismissal. Mm. So dismissal is the only component that is not bound by a spatial limitation. Um, when the uh, the drafters of the spell uh, decided to, to put in spatial limitations in certain portions and not others, it carries with it the implicit assumption that they knew that they were leaving that out from the bamping component. Um, because if you look immediately above the, the language that you just spoke about, Joe, um, while you're familiar with within 100 feet of you, you can communicate with it telepathically. Um, additionally, as an action, you can see through your familiar's eyes and hear what it hears until the start of your next turn, gathering any benefits, blah, 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 blah. Um, so what's interesting is that's a spatial callout. While it's within 100 feet, you have these abilities. You can summon it within 30 feet. You can do X, you can do Y. The only place where that limitation isn't present is, you know, bamping it out. What's interesting is that even within the section of the spell that says that you can remove it, the drafters later put in, when they talk about bringing it back, a spatial limitation. And I think that all of those align in such a way that makes it very, very clear that so long as you are aware that you're, so long as you and the familiar are on the same plane of existence, you know, like your, your general categorical requirements, I think that it's, uh, it's pretty clear um, and not ambiguous. Ooh. Okay. Anna, what about you? So I, I completely agree with that. I think that it doesn't need to be within 30 or even 100 in order for you to be able to bamf it out. I, I have a question, though, about the portion that Clint just read, where it says, while your familiar is within 100 feet of you, you can communicate with it telepathically, period. I know what you're going to ask. And then in yeah. the next section, it goes, additionally, as an action, you can see through your familiar's eyes and hear what it hears. Does that have a distance restriction on it? Or can it be as far away from you as it wants and you can still see through its eyes and hear what it hears, but it can't communicate with you telepathically? Right. Yeah. And so the... Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So the, the you know, the argument for binding it to that distance would be that that's in the same, same specific paragraphical callout. However, in the state in which we're all sitting... Um, punctuation and arrangement of words like in sentence structure um, is considered the least (laughs) persuasive of the methods of statutory interpretation. Mm. And you're only allowed to get access to those if the statute on its face, the the spell on its face (laughs) 
It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous. And I don't think so. I'm sorry, we don't get to yeah. that. I, you know, that is that is what yeah, I Yeah, and also we're in our own jurisdiction. That's right? true. Right, right. And also the state's rules. I don't know if it would make sense like like, like, no, you can't communicate telepathically outside of 100 feet, but you can be miles away and, like, look into its eyes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it, it, I, I think the telepathic components, like, the, the, more, the most reasonable interpretation would be that all of those telepathic components would be linked to a 100-foot radius from yeah. you. Um, yeah. But I, I agree with Clint that I don't think it has to be in any kind of range for you to bamf it out. What about you, Joe? Yeah, so I, I looked into it a little... Um, uh, on February 6th of 2017, Jeremy Crawford actually um, uh, addressed this issue um, on uh, Twitter. Find familiar puts a range limit on the telepathy it provides. It intentionally puts no range limit on dismissing the familiar. And then someone asked, so if you don't know where your familiar is, you can just dismiss it and call it forth again within 30 feet. And he said yes. Um, so I think that is... It, that's a really harmonious reading of that language. And I think it makes sense. And probably, I mean, it, they probably had to do that because think about it. What if you're familiar, like accidentally ran away and like, <laughs> like, could you just never cast the spell again and until it died? Or if you, you'd have to like recast it and then that one would disappear and make a new one. Um, seems a little excessive for what they're trying to do, which is make this creature that can bamf it out of existence um, so in the material plane. I think one of the best ways to understand a <clears throat> spell, by which I mean statute, by which I mean spell, is <laughs> um, to, to push it as spell far shoot. as... Yeah, yeah, to, to push it as far as possible. So, as far as the distance, so it's an unlimited distance, right? Does that unlimited distance include extra plenier distances? So, for uh, example, so, yeah. So, I think it has to, because... It falls into a bag of holding... Well, so uh, I, I think it would make sense if it did, because when you bamf it out, it's going to a different plane. It's going to a right. pocket dimension. Mm -hmm. So like it, it would make sense that that you'd if be able you, to call right. it from another different dimension. Right. So there's there's right. some questions about. So if it is going into a pocket dimension, it has to be somewhere where the astral sea reaches um, <laughs> right. because that's sort of the connective tissue. So if you were somehow like, let's say, outside of time and space. um <laughs> It what? Yeah, it might be possible that there would be no way for that familiar to. Yeah, you'd be you'd be basically operating like along the threshold of you know, um, just like outside of the math of how the universe works. So I think, given the pocket dimension, I think that's the limitation. Given the fact that it speaks of a pocket dimension, if your cosmology uses the astral sea model that's common in most D and D worlds, then it is limited to places that the astral seat can connect to. And so long as you're familiar is on a plane where that's the case, you can bamf them out. I, I am not going to be able to handle it if we go outside of time and space <laughs> in two of Glint's campaigns. I mean... <laughs> I mean, hey, Umbra, I, I will be able to Umbra handle has it. A and familiar. we should definitely do that. <laughs> I mean, Umbra has a familiar too, so like... That's right. <laughs> and the poor Nadine could get stuck somewhere. Um what I think is really interesting about this is that you could effectively leave a familiar in another town and tell the familiar, keep an eye on X NPC and the familiar would just do that. And then a day or two days or a week later, you could just bamf it back and have it report everything that it saw to you, which is like an insane, like spy tactic. Um, it can't bamf itself out, right? No. It has to be bamfed out. Yeah. I mean, it can be murdered. 
Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah. we can go to a real dark place here. Um, <laughs> well, and you but can technically, leave your familiars have died before. You, and you can leave it instructions to kill itself after a period of time. <laughs> there you go. Real dark place. Um, and then it basically. Why would you do that? Why would you not just baff it out yourself? <laughs> this is how Clint thinks, everyone. This is what our <laughs> campaigns are like. We're forced no, to a, make these kind it, of choices. You know, and that's that's kind of how Icewind Dale's supposed to work. But um, yeah, <laughs> if there may come a time where we lose your arm or keep a familiar. You mm-hmm. pick. Um, I, I literally almost lost an arm. In don't, so. <laughs> don't pick up a grenade. Like, kick that shit to the I side. I didn't know it was a grenade. <laughs> like, it's got a I did not put that together. <laughs> this smoking cylinder, I'm just going to pick <laughs> it up in my hand. <laughs> Boom. Well, yeah. hey, Inky helped with his medicine check on stabilizing that, yeah, so you, you're welcome. And you don't normally get to use medicine, so it's real interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So, are we all in agreement then? We are. Gavel, gavel. Yep. And we we entered a lot of like garbage dicta that I'm sure will never cause us problems down the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Especially because, of course, we never in, go this somewhere. This entire podcast is garbage dicta. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. moving on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because it's not like in any of our campaigns we go somewhere outside time and space where, like, this question of can you ban a familiar back whatever happened. <laughs> okay, we're all in agreement, unanimous court. Yes, we agree with Jeremy Crawford's tweet. You can ban your familiar out wherever that familiar is. All right, cool. All right, let's move on to our second case. In re call lightning. Can you cast the spell call lightning indoors? And, uh... We can go to the actual spell here, um, and it says a storm cloud appears in the shape of a cylinder that is 10 feet tall with a 60-foot radius centered on a point you can see 100 feet directly above you. Uh, If the spell fails, if you can't see a point in the air where the storm cloud could appear, for example, if you are in a room that can't accommodate the cloud... Uh, when you cast the spell, choose a point you can see within range, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it t- talks about damage. And then it goes on to say, if you are outdoors in stormy conditions, when you cast the spell, the spell gives you control over the existing storm instead of creating a new one. So the spell language kind of tells us the answer to this question. But Clint, what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, like uh, this, this can be cast indoors and outdoors. Um, and so... I just looking at the at the language of the spell. Um, so specifically, it gives us dimensional requirements, right? It's a uh, it's a ten feet by sixty foot radius space that has to be able to be a hundred feet above you, and so we know that those are the fixed mathematical limitations to the spell, uh, and that is a space that can be accommodated within another space. Um, the the important parts, although I think are. There is a specific language. So, for example, if you are in a room that can't accommodate the cloud, carries with it the implication that if you are in a room that can accommodate the cloud, the spell will manifest. Secondarily, at the bottom of the spell, the final paragraph, if you are outdoors in stormy conditions, carries with it, again, the implication that you can cast the spell indoors with stormy conditions. Otherwise, they would have left the language of outdoors-indoors out and would have just specified if it's a clear day, or if it's a stormy day. So basically, if this was a outdoors-only spell, then I think the limitation would be 
if you are in stormy conditions when you cast the spell, the spell gives you control over the current uh, storm. So, in that case, just looking at the language, um, I think we can limit our assessment to the language because I hate to break it to you guys. I know it's not a popular view in some circles, but I am a strict textualist. Um, <laughs> when it, you know, when it, when it, when it comes to the way that that's, that's the way it's written, and I, I think that's kind of the way we gotta go here, is that there are so many strong indicators that this can be used indoors on the basis of the language itself. Uh, I, I think that we're, we're kind of limited to that. I relied on the exact same words and the exact same language to come to the exact same conclusion. Here's a caveat for you. What if you are in a room with a skylight so you can see the point mm. and you can see the outside and you can see your 10 foot tall, 60 foot radius cylinder through the skylight, but you are indoors. Will it work? Yeah, and that does actually raise an interesting question, um, <clears throat> because you are still able to satisfy the mathematical requirements of the spell, because um, it is a point that you can see directly above you. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my my question would be, so yeah, you would be able to 100%, I think, manifest the spell. You meet the requirements spatially to do so. How would that differ in outcome, though? Right. So yeah, I think you'd you'd be limited on where the lightning could strike because if it struck anywhere other than through the skylight breaking it, then presumably it would just damage the ceiling and not your target. Right. Okay, so if we have like a glass ceiling. Oh honey. And that all glass it does ceiling is, is break the glasses. Broken. Yeah. So we're we're yeah. we're in agreement then that as long as you can see the point, whether you're inside or outside, and it can accommodate the space, you can cast it. Yeah, I mean, I think that looking back to our moonbeam discussion, our revised mm-hmm. moonbeam discussion, if you can see the point, um, then absolutely you can cast the spell there. I will also note some people might be confused about the that 100 foot limitation. So there is errata on this. Um, the same updated 2020 errata says... Um, in the, in the first paragraph of the spell called lightning, 100 feet is now changed to within range. Um, and that uh, in the second paragraph, within range is now under the cloud. So actually, it doesn't have to be a 105 foot tall room in order for you to cast the spell or 15 foot room. Um, you just have to have... Uh, Uh, at least 10 feet above Mm -hmm. you. So the minimum requirement for most creatures would be 15 to 20 feet above you of headspace. Um, Yeah, but I I Yeah, I mean, it would have to be at least like 11 feet above you, right? Because if it's exactly 10 feet... Oh, above you. Above you. I get... Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think... So an interesting and related question, though, is spell balance. So... Call lightning. If you are able, if you're a druid and you get in a nice, good position on the map, and you cast call lightning, you can basically rain death down um, <laughs> at will. With and because if you're not going to get hit, if you can pop in, if you can pop out from behind uh, full concealment, hit the spell, pop back, you can just every single turn deal massive damage to uh, massive AOE damage. So this is a level three spell. And it's not the only level three spell that involves lightning specifically. If you uh, if you turn to page um, two fifty five in the player's handbook, lightning bolt is is the other like common lightning spell. And I want to I want the opinion from both of you. 
are those in the same league? <laughs> I mean, well, which I guess which one do you think is more powerful? Well, I mean, I think that uh, <clears throat> so you know the people who have access to uh, Call Lightning, I I think given the damage set that they have, Call Lightning has the potential to be enormously devastating. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Lightning Bolt, that's a one-shot. And honestly, I think it is more dependent, Lightning Bolt is more dependent on the geography of the battle map regarding its effectiveness. Because you've got this five-foot line going mm-hmm. in a single direction. Whereas Lightning Bolt, turn after turn, you get to pick wherever on the map you want to rain death down. And so long as you don't lose that concentration, you are effectively just printing damage at will anywhere you want. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I guess I don't think Call Lightning is overpowered. So it's a concentration spell, right? So you still have sure. to maintain concentration. So if anyone used any sort of, you know, uh, any spell that required a save, you're most likely going to take at least one point of damage. So like mm-hmm. you're going to be making saves on that. Um, you also have to be able to see the point that you call lightning down. So like, yeah, you could pop behind cover, but every time you want to call lightning down, you have to run out and, and like visualize where you're going to cast it. So someone could hold an action to hit you. Um, and like three D 10 lightning damage on a fail or half as much on a success. I mean, it's a, it's a 10 foot diameter circle or square that, that it hits, right. Cause it's five mm-hmm. feet of a point in range. So it's kind of limited on, on how many creatures it could affect. So, and you have to consume a full action to do that each turn. When you consider that there's spells like chromatic orb, which are first level spells that do three D eight damage at first level. I mean, I don't, I don't see it as too overpowered, especially since you have the limitation of concentration and that you have to use your full action. Sure. So you, you see those as effective counterbalances to the raw potential output. That you could lose it at any time, you know, it's not too overpowered, you have to expose yourself to line of sight, those effectively for you balance out, yeah? Yeah, I think so, and I think, like, with with Lightning Bolt, I think that's also a very situational spell, but you could you could destroy an entire line of creatures that just happen to be poorly positioned, um, and, like... That, like that's a that's very powerful as well. So um yeah, third levels when you start to fucking I mean fireball's a third level spell, right? And everyone's yeah. always like, Oh my god, fireball. <laughs> I mean, fireball and lightning uh, bolts are are kind of very similar. It's just how you're how you're organizing that that type of damage. What shape do you like? Yeah, that's basically what it comes down to. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were asking I was like, us. are you asking my personal no. preference? Yeah, um, I, I like stars. Lightning bolt so, shape? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I like rom, rom, rhombuses and trapezoids. Rom, rhombi? rhombi. There, are no, there are no spells with a rhombus footprint. I don't believe that. There is should the be. There, sh- there definitely should be. Homebrew. Homebrew home spell. <laughs> rhombus. Rhombus. Call rhombus. Of- mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Call rhombi. Little rhombus. Little rhombi just start falling from the sky and they do piercing damage and math mm-hmm. damage. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Geometry yeah. damage. <laughs> yeah, I shit you not. The other day I had to do algebra, right? And it was like, wow, Why? I'm taking psychic, uh, calculating damages um, and, and stuff. But yeah. 
It was uh, it was that I, I took psychic damage from it, one hundred percent. So I think that <laughs> I think math damage is psychic damage. I'm pretty Listen, sure there, that's how there there aren't works. a lot of perks to being a lawyer, but not having to do algebra is definitely one of them. So <laughs> Anna, what do you think about the 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 difference in power? I I I think that well, first of all, it's really hard to create third level spells that are like all on equal footing mm-hmm. right like that would be very difficult they want to they want each spell to do something a little bit different keep it exciting and then you know there's there's the there's the point that um let's see who who can take lightning bolt is that also druids or who who uh, has that wi- available to them wizards uh not druids but li- uh lizards wizards <laughs> and sorcerers uh primarily i think Okay, so then there's also that aspect, right? Like it's like different classes capable of doing different things, and yeah. we all know that um, Joe thinks that druids are just the most badass class ever. So why wouldn't they have a nice call lightning powerful spell? But I also think that like they it balances. I know that you can hit multiple creatures with call lightning, but a max damage of thirty versus with lightning bolt, it's what a max damage of forty eight. Sure. Eight times six, yeah, forty-eight. Yes, forty-eight. Sorry, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. which is which is nice. You know, that's uh, that's pretty in a, in a hundred so. foot line. Like that's yeah. huge. So, yeah, yeah, it's very situational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. I, I I don't really have a issue with them both being third level. I think that they're okay balanced. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, all are right. we all in agreement then? You can cast this indoors. All right. You heard it. That that question was from Andrew. Andrew, I'm sorry that we're using all the questions and not having you on to talk about them, but you should come on the podcast again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Time to stop doing cases and all right. start relaxing. Let's let's switch over to our discussion topics. I think both of these were brought to us by Clint. So the first one is um, should failing by five or failing by a certain number, failing a check by a specified number uh, result in a negative outcome be an actual rule? So like failing by a specific number resulting in a negative outcome, should that be an actual rule or should it continue to be a homebrew rule? And does D&D have common law? Clint, where did this question come from? Well, so and it's it's worse than common law. It's actually administrative law. Um, and the reason <laughs> oh. I bring it up, no, it's it's terrible, right? <laughs> so we have we have our our hymnal here. We have the player's handbook, right? Which is you know as we construe it, the rules as written. You know everything that you need to know, all of how the game works, functions in here, right? But simultaneous to this particular document is the other <laughs> foundational component of that codex of D&D, which is the Dungeon Master's Guide, right? Mm. And I want to show you something interesting, right? So in the Player's Handbook, we go to, I believe it is chapter... Uh, I'm going to go here. Yeah, it's chapter 7, using ability scores. So mm-hmm. it, it, it explains under ability checks what happens when you make an ability check, right? So you roll 20, mm-hmm. you add the modifier, right? If your total equals or exceeds the DC, you succeed. Otherwise, it's a failure, which means one of two things. Either you make no progress toward the objective, or you make progress combined with a setback, as determined by the, the DM, right? So that's, that's the rules in this one, the player's handbook, right? And then we pull up the Dungeon Master's Guide, <laughs> right? And we go to the uh, using ability scores, 
And we go to, uh, and this is on page, yep, and then this is on page 242, when it's talking about resolution and consequences of dice rolls, right? And then it has an entire section called Degrees of Failure. Sometimes a failed ability check is different, has different consequences depending on the degree of failure. For example, a character who fails to disarm a trapped chest might accidentally spring the trap if a check fails by five or more, whereas a lesser failure means the trap wasn't triggered during the bot disarm attempt. So I don't know if you guys noticed there, but these are not the rules from the player's handbook, and they are different than the rules from the player's handbook. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they are in the other main book for D&D. Right. So we have Wait, a so it, it, it actually says that... Read that one again. It says that if you... If you Try to disarm a trap, but don't fail by five or more, then the trap doesn't go off. That's dumb. If you miss a DC, bitch, that trap is going off in my game. Right? Yeah. And so that's, <laughs> the, that's the thing is that so the, the rules in the player's handbook say, listen, if you blow the DC, you either fail, right? Or you fail or, or you make progress, but there's a negative result. The rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide say if you blow the DC, either nothing happens or if you blow it by enough, Bad things happen. Those are different, and they're incompatible. But wouldn't I mean, you argue... Well, are they? Wouldn't you argue that the yeah. trap going off would actually be progress, even though it has a negative result? Because then the trap is no longer... Sure. Yeah. Progress with the setback. So, okay, yeah. yeah, so we use that example, but what about the example of falling off a cliff? I mean, the only progress <laughs> that you're making when you fail by five while scaling a cliff is downward, and that's probably not the direction you want to go that fast, Right. So I mean, it's progress to the story because now they have to bring the character back to life. So <laughs> unless, as we discussed in our first episode, you're a barbarian who rages before you hit the ground. <laughs> so, so the reason I'm bringing this up is so we have these two primary documents that are in apparent conflict, and I want to point out the most egregious one. Um, so if you go to uh, if you go to page two thirty six of the Dungeon Master's Guide, so now I want you to bear in mind that the player's handbook outlines all the rules for the roles that you got to make, how ability checks work, things like that, right? Um, it's called, it's under a section called the roll of dice, right? And it has a subsection, and these are, these are the approved rules published that are for the game, that says, under ignoring the dice, one approach, <laughs> yeah, yeah, one approach is to use dice as rarely as possible. Some DMs use them only during combat and determine success or failure as they like in other situations. So what we have here, guys, is we have... How to run an authoritarian regime. Yeah, is one of these primary documents in the game, right? The Dungeon Master's Guide literally says that chapters 6 and 7 in the Player's Handbook, fuck them! If you want. <laughs> so, so okay, here's the very simple answer to all of this, right? Clint, sure, you're sure. gonna hate it. DM discretion. DM discretion. <laughs> you know, and that's, so, and that's great, yeah. but but when you want to say, okay, these are the rules as written, what do you do when then there are parallel established rules, one of which says the other doesn't apply? And I right. think well, technically, you fight with your players. That's right. what keeps it exciting. <laughs> sure, 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 yeah. Sure, yeah, if you're not having a, a knockdown, drag out, blood. Hundo spilling, then yeah. are you even playing a game? Yeah, Clint, you and I don't fight enough. Right. <laughs> I want to murder both of you, actually. That's um, how I know it's well, working. Yeah. So, so I think one important distinction, like I was always under the impression that the dungeon masters 
uh, guide, this is really all discretionary. So like none of this is actually how I would interpret it rules, which is why you sort of said it's like the administrative law, which every administrative Yeah, like agency, a dungeon master yeah, was so, just like, so, I'm going to try to interpret the statute exactly. and then I'm going to make up my own rules and nobody really has to follow them. <laughs> and there are no consequences. <laughs> well, and, yeah, and so that, that is the question though, right? Is So we do have these things and they are saying you can ignore this section or this section or this section. So what are the rules as written? Are we just going to say the rules as written are the player's handbook and we're going to ignore that entire other document that got published at the same time with the same level of authority, right? Because we yes. don't like the fact that it says a lot of other stuff. Well, but wait, wait, wait. You're making assumptions. It technically doesn't have the same level of authority, right? Because the player's handbook is the rules, but the Dungeon Master's Guide is just giving you alternatives to... to various different things i mean there's a lot in the dm's guide that i never even touch like like for example it's a guide not a code exactly um in no but like uh even in like an icewind dale uh you know we're using like not the necessarily the exact system but you told us beforehand like there's going to be some sort of serious injury system in play right so So, i I think but but what, what i would and so the question that i've got here right is so we have, you, you have the like, okay, you can use these optional ones, but what happens when the optional rule is used almost always in published supplements? Mm. And so that's where I'm getting at the, the common law part, right? So, so that fail by five rule, and I want to go ahead and dig down on that specifically, right? So <laughs> that one, that one is, you know, like if you fail by five or more, bad things happen, et cetera, et cetera, right? But I mean, so, if you look and at it the did actual, say in the, even in the player's handbook, it does say at the discretion of the DM, up yeah. to the DM. Right. So right. the thing is, though, so I'm looking at the, like Horde of the Dragon Queen, right, which is one of the published supplements. Um, and this is the one I've read most recently, so that's why it's on mine. You know, on page 74, there's a fail by five ruling. Um, and then on page 79, there's a fail by five ruling. Ghosts of Saltmarsh has like four <laughs> of them in various ones. And a lot of these are the older modules from like first, second edition that have just been upgraded, right? Um, Out of the Abyss, right, also has several of those. How many of those do you have? Clint has all of these books, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, He's literally holding them up for us to see. Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, we're currently, I'm not going to tell you where those are in there, but they are in there, right? (laughs) Um, And then the same thing. It's actually failed by two. But I guess it's... bad things happen in Icewind Dale. I mean, I think the difference is that those are modules, right? So they're trying to give you as much content as possible. Like, Mm -hmm. they're like fucking slamming your face Here's everything content, you need to know right? right so that so that so that you you don't have you have to do as little work as possible even right. though we all know a module is way more work in my opinion but um you think so no but hey, hold on hold on you think it is well it's not i would say it's not way more work but it is certainly not easier i i feel like it would be more stressful yes. to follow the module because you're like 100%. oh god if the if the path strays too much then we're outside the world right. and now i'm just bullshitting and if you create your own world then you're like great the whole thing is bullshit <laughs> i will i will exactly. tell you i will tell you and i it's been a thing i've been meaning to bring up so you probably at this point both of you can't refer to our yawning portal game as a yawning portal game we left that right. behind <laughs> Far, far time ago, right? Like, oh, yeah. yeah basically, I'm so glad we didn't buy an apartment. <laughs> Not well, yet. 
Yeah, no, I want to buy an it. apartment. Yeah, no, that's we legit. will go that's back to yawning portal at some point. Right? Yeah, no, no. Oh, you mean like outside of the yawning portal? Oh yeah, no, yes. shit, guys. Like, <laughs> I mean, nah, like basically, you know, like halfway through that uh, that temple in Cholt, we were like, and this is different, <laughs> and now there's a, like I will tell yeah. you that that stone. Wait, I got there just in time for yeah, that. I you, feel like this is my fault. <laughs> yeah, you got. Anna there joins the game and fucks it all up. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay so, with it. Yeah. But anyway, like to, to get back on track, okay. you know, I think like the reason I bring that up is so if if all the published materials are using this optional rule, like at what point is that like the rule that the community uses? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think it's really DM dependent. So for me for me, I don't strictly or or consciously use that rule, but it totally depends on the check, right? So as we said before, if you're trying to disarm a trap and I set the DC at 15 and you get a 14 or a one, it doesn't matter. The trap is going off, right? <laughs> like, like I don't think that you can dis. I don't think you can fail to disarm a trap with tinkering without with something setting it off. without setting it off, unless you said that like, oh, you cut you cut like a wire that was on a different device or something sure. altogether. Like, you know, you, you have to really sort of dig at that point. But for me as a DM, it's like, I almost, when do I get to spring traps on my players? Not all the time. So yeah, if you fuck it up, I'm going to make you deal with the consequences of that. Um, but I, I will say when it comes to like social situations or like, or like, um, uh, uh, like tests of athleticism or stuff. Yeah. Like if you roll a one or something super low, I usually take that into account in, in how narratively that comes out. But even then I typically don't, don't have there be some sort of like terrible consequence. Um, or sometimes it does. I don't know. I, I, I don't consciously think about it too much because I live in the world of DM discretion where everything is up to me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. um, I think the five thing actually makes sense even within the player's handbook because that little chart of their typical DC, difficulty so. classes, they're all separated by five. So it makes sense to me that like within that five, you have a range of, you know, okay, you needed to hit a 15, you hit an 11. That's not quite enough to hit just the easy range. It's a little bit better than that. So maybe no negative impact is going to happen. But now if it's 10 or less something could go wrong. That makes sense to me, even just within the player's handbook, that interpretation. So the fact that they, all those modules use the, the something at five or less than five fail at five. uh, It it makes sense to me. Uh, And I don't know that it necessarily needs to be like written in law. Yeah. So so here's, here's, here's something interesting though. So what if we apply this concept to checks like, like investigation checks or knowledge gathering checks. So say you roll a nat one, you're trying to like, okay, I want to learn something important about the city we're in, in a library. Does that mean the DM gives you like a fake piece of information that you just rely on? <laughs> I was going to say like a heavy tome falls off or the top that. shelf and you lose knowledge now. <laughs> so, and I think I'm not sure what edition this was in or if it was Pathfinder or something. Um, but there were either was a rule or an optional rule um, where for checks like that, the DM would roll them, and they wouldn't tell you what you got. They would just tell you the information you received. Uh, and that way, you... Because the idea is, you know, if you're like... If you're investigating, you don't know that you're on the wrong trail, right? You don't know that you got... Because mm. as a player, yeah. it's going to take a degree 
of it's going to take a degree of will and commitment to take that natural one completely wrong answer and be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to play yeah. like that's real and I'm going to put my character's <laughs> life on the line. And yeah, I like I'm that. that committed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so like there 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 was or was contemplated a system that did take that into account, Anna, um, and control that information. So so here's one thing sort of springing from this topic because your, your your second part of the question is is there D common law so i was thinking about this like are there other areas where there are things that pretty much all dms agree on but that isn't stated in the rules so one one issue i think that comes up a lot is upcasting spells so the rules say if a spell technically i think the raw is that if a spell says it can be cast at a higher level then you can cast it but what if you cast a spell like identify or detect magic which only has you know and let's say we're not doing the ritual and and it only can be cast at first level i as the dm i would never tell a player no you couldn't burn a second level spell slot because to me spell slots don't actually exist in DD, right it's like that's how we are 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 controlling magic keeping track and right but it's but but instead it's it's like it's like your reserve of magical abilities for the day the weave yada 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 so I don't know of a DM. I I don't know. We've never discussed this, but I don't know of a DM who would say, no, fuck you. You can't use a second level spell slot for, you know, a first level a first level spell. spell. Um, but th- I don't think that's raw that you can technically do that. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, so at that point, you're descending into like pedantry, right? Where, I mean, it's it's this, the same Am person. I? Well, no, I don't no, know no, that no, no, it's no, any no. I mean, different person, than anything no, else we've talked about. <laughs> the, the person, like the DM, who would be like, no, I'm sorry. You can't expend a higher level spell slot because the rules don't say that you can. That, that is, ah. you are missing the point sure. of gotcha. the game. That's what's pedantic, right? right? But but I think, yeah. does that go into your, in, I mean, but but it is something that's not necessarily explicit. So so that could be an example of like D&D common law, right? Yeah. Sort of like, yeah, like this is something we all accept as true, even if the rules don't want 100% support it. Sure, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, the other thing is, uh, and I know that, you know, in, the, in like a present edition, there's a way around it and all that, but like encumbrance and things like that. Mm-hmm. First goddamn thing out the door, right? Like yeah. in third edition, 100%. nobody's going to fucking do that, right? And so there, I think there are, in many cases, that the sort of general assumptions that have become so widespread in the community that they are, in fact, the dominant rule set rather than what is written. Um, and I think that's true. My question, yeah. though, for you two, though, is, Uh-oh. are people playing 5th edition D&D if they just don't use the fucking dice except for combat? Like, is that, is that no. the game? Is that even the same game? That gives the DM far too much power. And then I feel like I'm not like, right. the player I mean, isn't doing enough the- to be like part of the game if if the only thing I'm rolling for is combat. Yeah, I mean, I how would... I don't even. I mean, it would just be boring, I guess. Like, right? You, you would like if if I'm like, oh, okay, I want to investigate this chest, and then you're like, I'm just gonna tell you what I want to tell you, and yeah. that's gonna be that. What? I think it's weird. I, I could see it if you had an amazing DM who was like mm-hmm. a world class storyteller, and like they were just like the dice get in the way, and you wanted to play a very specific type of game. Sure, but no, that's dumb. That's called dice. a play. It's- right. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, it's called a lar- television like, show. It's, it's like you're LARPing, but too lazy to actually get out there into the woods, right? Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know? Okay. And so yeah. I don't, yeah, that would be, that would be my, I think, capstone question is, that's within the boundaries of the administrative rules of D&D, <laughs> but is it really D&D? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we, uh, should we move on to your second question? Sure. Let's yeah. do it. Okay. So your second question is, what is the utility of challenge ratings? Do they really matter? Where did this question come from? Yeah. Hydras, specifically, actually. <laughs> no, 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 for real, for real, right? That's um, hilarious. Yeah, no, because hydras are an interesting creature where um, their effective difficulty can be wildly different. The same thing with trolls, the same thing with several other, you know, very common staples in D&D. Um, so... In each one of those cases, there is a thing about that creature that can make it wildly more difficult or very, very easy to overcome, such that the one-dimensional mono, or the mono-dimensional measure of this challenge, that is, it is a six, or a four, or a three, or mm-hmm. a ten, at that point, the degree to which it has value as a signpost starts to drop off. Um, so and do, I you wanna, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about, like, just briefly for our listeners, like, what what is a challenge rating? Yeah, so a challenge rating is the expected difficulty of a particular monster. Uh, and so the challenge rating, so if the challenge rating, if it is equal to the levels of players, that means that it is a medium difficulty encounter for a group of four players of the same level as the challenge rating. Um, so, for example... A, uh, a wyvern, which I think is a challenge rating 6, would be a measurable medium challenge, so it would require some depletion of resources, would deal some amount of damage, and would be a difficult but satisfying encounter for four players. Um, and so there's some math about adding challenge ratings together, so like two fourth level creatures is equal to a sixth level because there's some extra math and things that go in there, and there's a whole chart and stuff in the Dungeon Master's Guide for how to manage that. But I guess the issue that I have with challenge ratings is that they are in many ways like modern medicine in that their dosage can't be calculated without the knowledge of the patient. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I think a good example of that would be, and Joe, you have 100% run into this, I know. When you throw a, I mean, every DM has run into this, where they've thrown a, a challenge rating uh, a challenge rating encounter that's like four 13. or five times. Yeah, let's just right? let's just pick thirteen because right. that's what I did to Anna's group and they killed it in one round. <laughs> the ogre. Yeah, yep. yeah, and it just gets rolled. <laughs> and and Joe, why? What what happened? Why do you think that that happened? Like, what's we were just too amazing and badass and spectacular yeah. and powerful and amazing. Well, did I mention amazing? Um, <laughs> so I think, admittedly, I think I. So I first of all, I tweaked it. I lowered its HP because I was mm. I was worried it would be too hard. Right. That's <laughs> I always tweak my monsters, and if I'm Holding like a stat block that pre-exists, I always like, I, I like reach for a higher challenge rating and then make it easier rather than sure, do the yeah. opposite um, or find an equal challenge rating. And then uh, I think it was just, it, it didn't have legendary actions, which is why so many of my big monsters have legendary actions because any DM will tell you it is so fucking important that your creature can do things not on its turn. Otherwise it's just, it'll get slaughtered by any competent group. Mm. Yeah. So, and I mean, one of the things that I've personally encountered is that the, uh, what makes the challenge rating? So, I mean, the Dungeon Master's Guide has in, uh, uh, what page is that? Um, it's towards the back. It actually has a 
manual for making your own monster and calculating DCs and stuff. It's like on one 278 or whatever. Point is, um, there there's like a offensive and a defensive component to the challenge rating and things like that. But that all just kind of gets summarized and grab bagged and then and then you know like average out. But but parties are different. Right, so let's take two parties for example. You have one party that consists of like three fighters and two clerics who specialize in healing and support spells, right? So that's going to be a relatively lower damage group, but they're going to just be like a sack of potatoes as far as the damage they can take, right? So, so yeah, they can take an incredible beating, but they can't dish out that much, right? And then you've got another party that has like several glass cannon casters an edgeboard rogue, and then, you know, maybe like a ranger thrown in there, right? Same number of players, same effective challenge rating ability, right? But their profile performance is wildly different. And so the same monster put in front of both of those groups is going to present either a really sufficient and enjoyable challenge or a total party kill. So, for example... (laughs) Well, and it will. So, for example, right? right? No, that's if true. You, yeah, you're absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. If you if you've got a uh, an extremely high damage monster, right, but that is relatively fragile, you put that in front of the uh, the three musketeers with the two backers, right? And they'll have a fun, exciting time. You know, they'll get hit. They'll be able to take some massive blows. The healers will have something to do, and it won't take them that long to chip away at that creature's relatively small health bar, right? But you throw that in front of your other group, the ones that are really high damage. And it's a race to see who gets lucky on a dice roll first. Right. Because mm. let me tell you, that, those are the those are the fights where initiative is so important. Right. Mm. And and so what that means is that in those fights for that group that's a high damage, low HP group, it's no longer a it's no longer like a fun and interesting challenge. It's more of a life or death race to random. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so in that case, the CR of that creature means wildly different things to those different groups even though it's the same number with the same group. And so I would argue that your challenge rating is at the very minimum, or is at the very best, the starting signpost. And then from there, every time, you have to go ahead and adjust to match your group. And whether, Joe, as you said, that's tinkering with the internals, right, Mm -hmm. or taking care of it some other way. I mean, Anna, how many... Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, so Anna, you know, you're, you're going to be DMing soon. Have you thought about this at all and like how you're going to build encounters? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> the way that I've been thinking about it is that I want to pick cool monsters yeah. first. Like mm-hmm. I want to pick the enemies that I think are going to be fun in a narrative way. And then I'll internally tinker with them to make them easier or harder, depending on how it's going to go. So right. that's about as much thought as I've given to like how the challenge rating compares to my party. They're all going to be fifth level folks um but i i want to pull monsters not just from like cr5 i i want like a variety of them so and but honestly i think it does absolutely like clint described come down to knowing how your players combat right because Mm -hmm. the 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 two parties that he described like you're absolutely right like you cannot throw the same level of monsters at those two people at those two groups mm-hmm. you're just not going to get the same results and there is going to be a set that's going to be disappointed because yeah. it was either too hard or too easy right i mean like there are certain classes which if you have them in your game you have to tweak monsters accordingly and one of them is barbarians if you have a barbarian in your party um i'm 
I love barbarians. I think they're fascinating class and really they're awesome to play because they because of how 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 much damage they can do and how much damage they can take. They're really tanky, but you really have to counterbalance their resistances. In mm-hmm. in uh, Clinton, our Geyser campaign, we have a ancestral guardian which gives disadvantage on all attacks to anything else. Um, if you hit it, it has disadvantage on attack rolls against anything else and all other creatures are resistant to attack damage, which is great. So it, it actually buffs the rest of your party. And in our guide, your campaign, Joe has resistance to everything, but psychic damage, making him a ridiculous tank. So like <laughs> I have to work super, like basically Joe went head to head with a fucking dragon and won, right? Like that's the kind okay, of, he had help. Calm uh, down. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. He did. Um, but like, I like, I, as the DM, need to take those things into account absolutely when building in um, mm-hmm. creatures and encounters, or else it's not it's not a, a, a satisfying combat. I don't want a combat where we just go in in the first round, everyone slaughters everything, and it's like, yeah, and they get the treasure. It's like after like that's fun every once in a while, but eventually you guys are going to get super bored of that, right? Right. And that's fun when you've got new players that are at like right. low levels and there's like an actual legitimate fear that they'll just die because their HP is so low. But yeah, you're right. Like if we just kept doing that and it was just like us making a bunch of attacks and then defeating the monster and then accomplishing the goals with no drama in there about the near deaths or the near losses, that's not the point, right? Like, so yeah, I agree with you. And I, I have I have one further question, at least on, on it. So for for you, Joe. So I know that you homebrew a lot of creatures, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So do you do you how do you how do you moderate and decide what the power level is for those things? Because um, like in the monster manual, it'll be like, oh, this special ability adds two to the CR. But what if <laughs> what if this monster just randomly changes resistances every round, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I so, think is one of your your more inventive creations. Yeah, don't don't give him ideas. <laughs> no, that's his. He already did it. Yeah, absolutely. Like you have to watch out for like how those special things you add affect combat. So what I try to do with with my combats is I like to make all of my combats kind of like a puzzle. There's some piece you have to understand to be on equal footing with the creature, and if you don't get that, then then you're, you're shit out of luck. So. Um, uh, uh, I'll use an, ugh, well, I don't want to use this example because both of you might come across this, but, um, uh, th- there could be, for example, a battle where like doing damage actually heals it and doing healing hurts it. Mm. Okay. Unless you understand that and, and pick it up from the clues that you get during combat, you're not going to understand that. Right. Um, uh, well, we fought that thing where it was just resistant to radiant damage, right? Yes. And like then it was like a whole series of monsters that had the similar mm-hmm. resistance. And without that understanding, and without making my divine smite completely useless to me, thanks, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> we would never have and I think that's, beat those. Yeah, yeah. Joe, that's a great example of like telegraphing that information, you know, for later encounters. So um yeah. I think that's yeah. Yeah. And and I think there was so uh Clint uses I won't describe this too much because I plan to use this in the other campaign, but sure. the last creature that Fadir fought, I don't know if you remember, it was it was that thing yeah, that yeah. could change, mm-hmm. right? So that creature, it wasn't so much that 
it, its attacks were super powerful. It was that if you didn't pick up that every time it changed form, it gained and lost different different abilities and, and characteristics, mm. then if you kept spamming the same attacks, you would actually hinder yourself as much as you'd help yourself. So like it's those kinds of things that I like to throw into combat to to make you think as a player, how am I going to tackle this new challenge? So that's sort of where 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 I come at it. Yeah. Well, and I think in addition to understanding like the CR is using that as a signpost, you have to understand like what role this monster has within the wider like role of being bad things. Um, so, for example, in our Icewind Dale campaign, the majority of players are ranged, right? And so that's required me to like make a few adjustments as far as how can I challenge you all, right? Because nothing is more boring than I'm going to stand behind this waist-high wall and shoot at the people who are sitting behind that waist-high wall and shoot at them, despite the fact this that... This feels targeted. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's targeted at, at, like, the video games industry over the last 15 years, but... Right. Um, yeah, yeah, no. And, and so, for, for, for those cases, right, I, you have to be cognizant not only of, you know, what the, uh, what the challenge rating the monsters are, but also the environment, which can make an equal or simple challenge into a total party oh, yes. kill instantly. Oh, absolutely. If you yeah. if you take an, a simple battle and put a chasm in the middle of the battlefield, you suddenly upped the quote-unquote challenge rating by a lot cuz all the, that all that beast has to do is hit or the monster has to do is hit you with an attack and knock you and you have to fail a save for you to potentially die. So like, yeah, I I think though all of those things are important and Anna, you know like um, uh, you guys encountered two ropers um, early on, in, early on in your campaign, and I adjusted them. I made them juvenile ropers and whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, those are those things that those things that looked like stalactites uh, or stalactites, yeah. and and had those like uh, uh, things that like pulled people every which way. And you guys were fighting on like a ridge, several mm-hmm. several tens of feet above like um, a cavern river, and like that could have ended a lot differently depending on how people sort of reacted to the fight. So yeah, we had to make rolls when we like escaped their grasp and fell. And yeah, that, that was a, that was a a very, it was a very good set piece, Joe, very risky. Um, uh, like, <laughs> well, I, and I just, but see, that's PCs. an example where I knew yeah. like, I want to have a really difficult, creepy ass creature, which for those listening, if you don't know what a roper is, go look it up, but they're kind of gross. But, but, um, I knew that, like, if I gave them a roper, like what we encountered at the beginning of Yawning Portal, because uh, yeah. we had one where we encountered a roper early on, and it was way too hard for us, and we were like, "We're all gonna die." <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know why that was in there, but that was that was in there as like a standard standard roper, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I was like, "That's not going to work." So we're going to make yeah. some changes here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thank God you did, or else we would all be dead. Um, yeah. But but I knew that like this is one I have to adjust because this creature is way too difficult. It has like an AC twenty. Um, its attacks do like three or four d eight damage, and for player level two or three players, that's ridiculous. So correct, Gray. Yeah. Well, and you know, especially when the monster can interact with the environment in a really negative way, like the throwing people off the ledges. That uh, um, that uh, Dwarven Forge that you guys were in, in Yawning Portal, I think, and I'd have to reread the book, but I think it said that, like, you should drown the players in the river. Oh, my. Because yeah, remember, there was a river there, and so, like, yeah. one of the things is, like, as a DM, oh. like, the roper will put them in the river, 
right? Oh wow! And it'd be Yikes. like, yeah. So and and then and to then be fair. I mean, this could be a whole other discussion topic, which maybe Clint will have to have you back again. But like mm-hmm. with the introduction of all of these amazing D&D shows, I do think the game has really changed in character a lot. Like, obviously, I didn't play years ago. So I, what, you know, what the fuck do I know? But I do think it went from from even like listening to Stephen Colbert describe his experience as a kid, it really went from a game where like your characters would die fairly frequently and you just reroll new <laughs> ones to, to things now where it's like, we tell stories that could easily be books or TV shows. And, right. and like, I like that more. I think I get more out of this when my character, when, if my character dies, I know it's going to be a huge thing, both to me and the rest of my party. And it's not just a video game where you just re-roll someone else. So I do think that like those kind of really dangerous situations make sense in that more gritty sort of environment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I do, I, I do have grief counseling prepared for both of you. Um, All <laughs> the rest yeah. of the party takes psychic damage. Right. I will say this. I never want you to hold back from if, if my character dies and that's just the way the dice roll. So be it. Like I, in any campaign, I am a hundred percent fine with that. Just don't do what I did and cast finger of death at one of the, your players who is sixth level to audit to to purposefully kill them but i knew they would be brought back to life actually clint when you listen to this episode you'll hear what happened in the last session of gaidra so just take that meta knowledge with you when when sure, you sure, enter sure, the yeah, campaign yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so All no right. I, I think uh, yeah i think that's 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 challenge ratings in the box i think the way you put it in is that that's a that is a good signpost that you then have to take mm-hmm. into account with the group that you're playing with um, and the map that you're dumping this thing on. Um, and it's only yeah. with that additional information that the CR value becomes really meaningful. Uh, that would be my cap on it, unless you guys got a different perspective. No, I think that's... No, I'm with you. Yeah. I think that's... Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Clint. Yeah. That was a great episode. Great discussion. As always. Yes. Yeah, Thank you so much for coming back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, we'll see everybody next time. Yeah. Bye. All right. See you guys. Clear the old pipes. <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. I I thought that was quite the pipe was, cleaning. <laughs> yeah. Guess what's going at the end of the yeah, episode, Clint? <laughs> yeah, no, right?